We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. And that leads to a question that's kind of percolating in me. And that is, you know, coming back to marriage and, you know, meeting meeting, uh, mental illness or, or mental health challenges in marriage. What advice do you have for the married person to really be present if, if not only for your own concerns, but also for the concerns of your spouse? I guess the scenario I have is, is if, there's, if you have some concern that your spouse may be struggling, but your spouse has not been able to give voice to that, how would you advise a person in a situation like that? To talk to someone, um, I believe that all of us need to have a sacred conversation partner that we trust. And whether that's a spiritual director or a therapist or a counselor, we all need to have someone that we can ask these brave questions. We also need new resources. Um, I'm not aware of a screening tool for couples where the person filling out the screening tool is someone concerned about their partner. And so the question would be geared towards, are these behaviors that you see in your partner? And then that kind of screening tool would give you some some insight. Right now, the screening tools I've seen are for the individual for themselves. And so this is really a new field um, of research and study. I think your point is very well taken because That's where a lot of us find ourselves. We are kind of on the outside, uh, knocking on a door and wondering if this is the house uh, we are entering. And so we need a place where we can go there and ask these hard questions. Sarah, what is your hope for this book? Um, What do you hope that readers will take away from it? How do you hope it might impact couples? Already, I'm seeing the impact as we prepare to launch the book. We're reaching out to folks who will review it, who will blog about it, you know, this conversation. And I was brought to tears when I heard from the publisher that one of the reviewers was very excited about it. But before she could do her review, she had to get permission from her husband because she wanted to begin to tell the story about their marriage. And That's why I do this work. There are so many of us who are isolated from one another. You may think you know someone really well, but we carry these stories um, that we are too ashamed to tell. And so my hope for this book is that readers and communities will go into this place that God is calling us to be authentic representations of God's love, that it will create real spaces to find hope and healing 
authentic communities where we can show up and be ourselves. And I believe that will lead to friendships. By sharing these stories, we will connect to other people in ways we could never imagine. And friendships will grow because of it. And people will get help. You know, we, we thrive because of the professionals in our lives, but we also thrive because of friendships. And so we, we need support communities made up of both. You know, some people we pay to sit down uh, side by side and have a conversation. <laughs> and some people we just buy them coffee and we sit down for conversations. But both types of conversations are critical. Truly, truly. Pastor Sarah, I deal with uh, various degrees of anxiety and depression, and and there's a bunch of family history regarding that. And I found that learning about that has also been really important in my world. And also not just talking about it, but the way we talk about it. I have a cousin, for instance, whose story, when I tell I try to say that he died by suicide, not that he committed suicide. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the importance of reducing stigma and how we talk about these things. In my book, Blessed Union, I tell not only the story of my marriage, but the story of other couples and other marriages. And I believe it's important to tell the story about death by suicide. And so that is a story that readers will experience and then be invited to discuss, to reflect on and think about. If we understand that uh, we don't want uh, to create a God who is the judge in the sky, that type of theology to um, free ourselves from the toxicity of God is judge. One example of that is in how we talk about suicide. To say that someone killed themselves takes us right back to the Ten Commandments and thou shall not kill. So what we need to understand about mental health is that uh, for many people, for many people, uh, suicidality is a part of a mental health condition and can be a symptom of mental illness. So it is not the same as killing someone it is like dying from a terminal illness. And so someone dies by suicide, just as they may die from cancer or die from heart disease. And so just think about the difference and, and what that means when we phrase it that way, how much more compassion we can have for people who die from a terminal illness, rather than seeing them as a criminal and somebody who committed murder. And so being a compassionate is a key part to ending the shame and stigma. But sadly, for many people who are survivors of suicide loss, there's still that significant shame and stigma that the church contributes to when we think about God as the judge, rather than the God as the compassionate grief counselor, the God who holds us while we weep and wipes our tears away. Wow. I, you know, I mean, wow. <laughs> that, I, it's so obvious after you say it, but that is like a paradigm shift for me to think about, yes, 
for any other illness, you'd say, oh, you know, the heart stopped beating or something. You'd say there was some kind of symptom that caused the death. And so this is a symptom. And as um, a non-practicing but licensed attorney, I, I, I think of there's no way that you would say there was any uh, – it's not – killing happened here. There's no mens rea. There's no state of mind that allows intentional death or murder because this symptom came in and kind of wipes it away. So if we would say that legally, then how much more do we say that morally and ethically, et cetera? Thank you for that. I I would like to jump in and honor my great-grandfather, Carl Matson, for whom I am named You've given me a new way to talk about how he died. Thank you very much. One of my um, friends is a child psychologist and suicide has impacted her life personally. And when she explained what happened to her child, a young child about what happened, she said that the person that they love so much died from a brain attack. That's another way we can think about this. It's a mental health condition, a terminal condition, a brain attack. It feels much more uh, accurate. I, f- I think it feels much more precise and real when you say that. And of course, brain attack from heart attack. Right. Yes. And one, when you have a brain attack, what can you do? Your brain has been attacked. And so whatever happens out of that was not something that you had any control over. And how would God respond to a beloved child dying of a brain attack? But to hold that child in God's arms and weep. Love and compassion. Absolutely. Well, I also want to just, you know, raise my hand and speak on behalf of marriages reaching out for support. I, I tell this story in my book on teachable lessons, but three months after my wife and I got married, we um, there was a situation involving her mother getting sick and a friend made a request of me and I didn't want to meet the request and it ended up in a huge fight. And fortunately we turned to our pastor and she made her referral to a therapist whom we ended up working both of us individually and as a couple with for several years. And, and we've, we've worked with a couple of other therapists along the way as well. And now, you know, this year we'll be married 28 years. And I think we both say we have a very happy and joyful marriage, but it did take a lot of work, you know, and a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to acknowledge that those shadow dimensions. So I just, um, yeah, this, this is, this is good stuff. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing, Sarah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I celebrate that that you are testifying to the reality that um, it is a communal gift to to be part of beloved community. This myth of you know rugged individualism, capitalism, you know this patriarchal white supremacist view that we all are out there on our own pulling ourselves up from the bootstraps that manifests itself in our marriages. But when I hear stories like yours and stories like mine and friends who they say, there's not two people in this marriage, there's five. 
there's me, my partner, each of our therapists and our marriage counselor. Um, it's a big group of people here <laughs> uh, making this work and making this be a place where there is love that can bless us. Amen. So Pastor Sarah, you've mentioned several resources over the course of this conversation, and I'll make sure you have websites that people can turn to, and I'll make sure that they'll all be listed on our website, the show notes for, for the, this episode so that people can, can explore those resources. But I'm wondering if there's anything else in particular that you would want to recommend for couples or for individuals who who recognize that they need to learn more or they need to, to seek out assistance or help, what resources would you suggest for people? You know, the, the NAMI and the Mental Health America are really the two both uh, well-regarded, well-respected, very thorough um, national organizations that are nonprofits. Is there privacy in those, in seeking help through those organizations that people can feel assured that they if they're maybe not ready for that, that coming out part of to themselves or to others, um, can people seek help there and not, not be ready for that? Is that, is that okay? Yes. I mean, both NAMI and Mental Health America are run and operated and led by professionals trained in the field. And so it's part of our professional code of conduct that people's confidentiality and privacy are honored and respected. So it's a safe place to go to begin exploring resources and getting help. You know, it's interesting from all the, I don't know why I want to say this, but it just struck me and all the episodes we've done for the podcast and all the silence and everything, confidentiality and quiet is, in, is silence on some level, allowing for that safe space. Yeah, it's a, it's a type of, of good silence. Yeah. Healthy silence. Yeah, absolutely. Healing and open silence it's, it's, that almost mirrors kind of a, a allowing for prayer or transcendence or something. Never really made the connection with confidentiality for the benefit of people exploring and trying to understand the shadow side and et cetera. I, I so love this conversation in terms of our podcast's mission because I think you've given us some very rich ways of thinking about silence, both in terms of the challenge of silence, the silence that needs to be broken, but also, especially in the story about you and your husband uh, in the therapist's office, how silence can also be a gift. And so, um, so thank you. This has really, really been rich. Thank you so much. I, I feel compelled to share with you um, an aspect of silence that I still carry anger around. So something happened to me and I'm very angry about it. And I'd like to share that with you if that's a... Please do. I was in a point in my life where I felt so desperate, so discouraged, so lost and hopeless. And so I turned to a pastor and asked for prayer and I couldn't text or I couldn't call and I didn't have the chance to see the pastor in person but I sent an email and it felt so scary writing this email because I was admitting to myself and I talked about self-stigma being such a barrier to breaking the silence I 
asked God to help me broke through that barrier of self-stigma and confessed or admitted to this pastor, I was having serious problems and I was afraid and discouraged and feeling hopeless. And I shared that with the pastor and asked for prayer. That's all I wanted. I wanted someone else to know what I was going through and I wanted them to pray for me. And that pastor did not respond. And I'm angry about that still today. And that was years ago. And when I've shared this with other people, they wanted to defend the pastor and say, well, you know, we don't get all the emails that people send us. You know, probably the pastor didn't get your email. But I copied another pastor on staff and that pastor responded to me. But this other pastor who I was really hoping would acknowledge and respond did not. So I still don't know why that person didn't respond to me, but it really hurt. It felt like a judgment. It felt like I was not worthy of being prayed for, that something was wrong with me. So those are all things I interpreted and I admit that. These are things I'm putting on that person, why they didn't respond. But there are other stories of people breaking the silence in church, standing up in the midst of a congregation during joys and concerns, telling the people, look, I'm having a rough time. I'm thinking of suicide. I, I want you to pray for me. And then that person, when worship was over, being confronted with silence and not a single person went up to them and acknowledged them and what they had said. What is wrong with us? That is some kind of systemic problem. It's not just that one pastor who didn't reply to my email or that one church who ignored the person who prayed. There is something in our system. You could call it stigma. You could call it ableism or discrimination. I am trying to uproot that in this work, in these conversations. And that will save lives when we learn what the silence that is life-giving, what that is. And when we learn the difference between the silence that is detrimental and toxic and can lead to the ending of someone's life. That's great power, choosing to engage, choosing to withhold engagement and why we're making those choices. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Thank you for sharing that. And I just think about you and other people who have experienced that, you know, when we show up and have the courage to break the silence and it's met with silence. Yeah, the way that that can induce shame and 
And yet we have, we have the ability to witness each other when one of us shares something and exposes something and is willing to, to break that silence. And, and that's a gift to be able to say, I see you, I hear you, and I'm here with you in this space. I think that that's powerful. And, and to what we were speaking to earlier, it, it, it expands the image of God. God is in that space where we get to see each other and witness what we're going through. I think that um, what you said is so true that um, there are ways to respond with silence that are healing. It, it was easier when we were in person. You could go up to someone and gently put a hand on their shoulder or on their hand. If it's appropriate, give a hug or a loving touch. There's a powerful idea of the compassionate gaze. And there's been research about the healing power of a compassionate gaze, acknowledging the grace and power of silence and compassion through the eyes, the window to the soul. And so for us to be better at that, and we can, we can practice that. We can do that with more intentionality. We can trust that power of the healing, compassionate silence and cultivate that. That's a silence that's created by love versus a silence created by fear. I think we're afraid that whatever it is that person has or is, is contagious. And we don't want to be associated with it. So we ignore it. Hmm. Why? I hate to be the geek for the moment, but where would I look up research on compassionate gaze? <laughs> because that sounds unbelievable reading to me. <laughs> I don't recall the article. It was an article I read that mm. that was, you know, scientifically based research around the rewiring right. of our brains. Right. With the compassionate gaze. Um, Google's my friend. I'll find it. Yeah. It's a technique we can hone and use with intentionality. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can do it um, this way, too. We mm -hmm. need to have practice sessions. Mm -hmm. And aren't there eye-gazing techniques and, and practices that, that couples can yeah. do for yes. increased intimacy? Yes. God, I, I feel like every question or comment from me is, thank you, thank you, but thank you. This is unbelievable. It's just everything. It's just so powerful. I'm excited about your work. So what's your current work? What are you doing? Is there, is there, I, I assume we're going to be promoting this book or anything, Is but is, what else are you doing? Is there more writing? Is there other things that you'd like to share? I, I know this work is ongoing for you, but is there other things that you're doing that you'd like to share or is it too early to share that kind of thing? So it's a little too early to share uh, my next big project. I My heart is fully into the Blessed Union, breaking the silence about mental illness and marriage. Totally. And so I'm really excited to, to share this with the world. You know, Pastor Sarah, when, um, when my daughter was alive, she had a significant disability. She had been born with polycystic kidney disease. And then when she was three years old, she had a stroke. And that left her uh, requiring the use of a wheelchair for the remainder of her life. She died when she was 29. And it was fascinating. And, and, I, and I, 
I want to express this with as open a heart as I can, because the temptation to speak in judgmental ways are very great here, but I want to avoid that. It was very fascinating to see how many different ways people would respond just to her being that we would go to a social situation, a party or a gathering or a, a program at church or whatever. And there would be people who would simply ignore her. And there would be people who would engage with her like they would engage with anyone else. And then there would be people who would be drawn to her. And like I say, I don't want to, I don't want to be in a position of judgment, but, but simply to notice. And the way I, the way the story that Fran and I, Fran, my wife, that Fran and I would, would tell, you know, and to try to, to not be in judgment is that some people didn't have the bandwidth or the, or the resources, the inner resources to be able to meet Rhiannon. But others obviously did. And so, of course, we would focus on where the positive connections were. But it's hard not to, not to meet that with, with a bit of judgment. So your comment about there are systemic issues at play here is very helpful. I don't know if, if Pastor Sarah has anything to say there, but I find that interesting that what you just said, Carl, because I'm thinking we noticed that with people, like for your daughter, she's sitting in a wheelchair, so it makes it obvious to somebody. But it's interesting we could expand that and ask ourselves the questions, do we have the resources to meet anybody? Because I, mental illness could be hidden. She's not sitting in a wheelchair, or he or she or whatever, you know. So I, I, I'm just thinking about myself, like uh, bumping into people now and noticing in my family, friends, et cetera, and when I shut down. And I can't speak and I can't be present to them um, or I'm ashamed and I run or I ignore them. Uh, I'm thinking about family gatherings and, you know, so-and-so shows up and I can't today. And so then the whole party, I am not, <laughs> I will not look at, you know, so-and-so in my family. It's just, I can't, just can't today. Right. And so it just opens up this door of asking these questions about being present to others. And the systemic nature is what we call ableism. So it's this bias towards people who are able-bodied. And discrimination and bias, it comes from a place of fear. And the reality is we are all temporarily able-bodied. That at some point we will experience a physical, mental, emotional disability in our lifetime. We're in denial of that. We judge that. And so that is one of the barriers of truly engaging in an authentic way is our own bias that's born out of fear. You're, you're, hide, you're, you're uh, ripping a place. My hiding place is, Pastor uh, Sarah. Like, <laughs> I'm in a temporarily <laughs> abled body. Ouch. Calling me out. It's absolute true. Well, one of the journeys with me and my, my daughter, and she was actually my stepdaughter, I met her when she was five years old, but was that I realized I was afraid of her. I was afraid of her disability. And that I had to work through or, you know, 
move through that fear to to that place where I could simply be in relationship with Rhiannon, the person, and not Rhiannon, the disabled child or the polycystic kidney disease sufferer, you know, et cetera. But it was a process for me. That's why the focus on person first, this relational focus, focus around honoring the humanity of, of all of us is a key to unlocking the compassion and the love that we all desire that everyone experience. Pastor Sarah, we often like to ask if our guests have maybe a poem or a book that they might want to share something from, whether that's just an excerpt or a line. And I wonder if there's anything relevant for you that you might like to share with us. So when the pandemic was unfolding in March of 2020, uh, we love to read. We are bibliophiles in our family. My husband is best friends with the local librarians. Um, and so we, we were afraid that we would lose access to books. We like hard paperback books. We're not totally into all the digital books. And so we did um, a run to the local bookstore and uh, my husband wanted to get me books to read to keep me company. So he photographed all of the new releases on the bookshelves and would text me a picture of these shelves of new books. And I went through and, and offered him the titles of all the books I wanted. And so he came home with a stack of books. And one of the, the gifts of that and the real gems was this book by Sasha Sagan, Carl Sagan's daughter came out with a brand new book in the spring of 2020 that your listeners may not know about. It's called For Small Creatures Such As We, Rituals for Finding Meaning in Our Unlikely World. Sasha is a young woman. She talks about her new marriage. She talks about having her first baby and being someone of a Jewish ancestry. She also talks about this agnosticism, this atheism, and a real desire for her marriage and her young family, her daughter, creating rituals that aren't based on Jewish exclusively or Christian traditions. And I love that. As a Christian and as a pastor, I was fascinated with her examination of religious rituals and how people um, can develop rituals from a secular point of view. And I lift that up to you because she was a real gift to me during those early months of the pandemic. And it reminded me of the work I'm doing to create rituals for marriage. And so it comes back to a gift in Blessed Union that is a ritual of new vows for a marriage. And so I'd like to share those new vows with you. This is my promise to you. I will see you as a whole person and not as your worst symptom. I will love you for who I know you to be and not for how you feel or behave. This is my promise to me. I will see myself as a whole person and not as my worst symptom. I will love myself for who I am known to be 
and not for how I feel or behave. This is my promise to us. We will seek support from family, friends, and wider circles of care so we can faithfully fulfill these promises. We will bless our marriage each and every day, knowing God is love and trusting God is with us. Powerful. So powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pastor Sarah, I'm, I'm cognizant of time here, and this has been such a beautiful conversation. I am so grateful for you and your holy work in this world and so lucky that I get to work with you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us again. And I, I trust I'm speaking for all of us when I say we can't wait to have you back again. So thank you. This conversation, uh, Cassidy just nailed it. Holy is the word. It's, it's, it's been a sacramental and powerful needed antidote of kind of what I needed. <laughs> and I hope whoever hears it um, will be as blessed and I'm pretty sure they will be. So thank you so much for your important work. Yeah, the word that comes up for me is grace. I, I sense that there's a lot of grace in, in your ministry, your writing, of course, but also in who you are. So, so again, thank you for thank being you. with us today. Thank you. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.